This is Kate Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School. On this week's Moneyball Highlight Show, we have a conversation with Ben Baldwin. Ben, longtime, high-profile, respected analyst in the football world, frequent guest of the show. We talk about the controversies coming out of the conference championship weekend, what it means for what happens next, and around the NFL, what is going on. Ben Baldwin. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, all three co-hosts, colleagues, and collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Joining us is Ben Baldwin. Ben is a longtime friend of the show. It's been a little bit since we've talked to him. Our schedules have not coordinated. We like talking to Ben regularly. Those of you who are in the football analytics world know Ben's work. You can find him on Twitter at, at Ben B. Baldwin, or perhaps more locally known as Computer Cowboy. Ben B. Baldwin tweets under the handle Computer Cowboy. He is an economist by training. He has been a contributor to outlets such as The Athletic over the years. His full-time job is in another industry, but he clearly has a passion and a talent for football analytics. Ben, it's been too long. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. And I, I really lucked out with the schedule with not only all four of you, but talking about football the week after the conference championship week. So I, I'm very uh, happy to be here with you guys. Well, thank you, Ben. Um, you know, it is a fun time of year to talk football, and the football is really delivered. Both college and pro is really delivered this year so far, and not only in football entertainment, but in analytics controversy. So uh, to some extent, we might all be kind of over it, but we can't quite be over it because we have Ben Baldwin on here. We have Audie Weiner of the Brill Weiner, whatever y'all call it, framework model, the Brill Weiner solution. <laughs> <laughs> the Brill Weiner Solution. Get Frederick Forsyth to write a book, The Brill Weiner Solution. Brill Weiner, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking, of course, about in-game decision-making. Dan Campbell and the Lions had a few that didn't go their way, which has spawned all kinds of controversy. Um, great football this weekend. Some tragically sad football for some of us, but great football nonetheless. Ben, what were your takeaways from Sunday's matches? Yeah, we definitely do need to mention, since since it is Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, by the time people are listening to this, people are still talking about the fourth downs by the Lions um, in their game against the 49ers. They had two opportunities to kick field goals that were 40-something yards long. It was, I think, fourth and two or fourth and three on both of them. They went for it twice, they failed twice, and they ended up losing by three points. So, of course, all the discussion afterwards is about... Oh, if they had just kicked these two field goals, which are guaranteed points, they would have had six more points and they would have won the game. And I think there's some interesting parts of this. One is that, at least according to the models I've seen, and there's like there's NGS models, ESPN models, I have my own model. None of them were really strong one way or the other. So it's not like you see analytics people banging the table that like this was and this is the whole point of Audi's paper right that this is not an obvious decision I don't think I've seen any analytics person saying this is an obvious decision they had to go for it and they they were right to go for it and here it seems like it was more a case of this is the identity that Dan Campbell wants to have for his team this is how they've played all year this they've historically converted at a very high rate in these situations and on the first play, the, the play worked. They had a pass that bounced off the receiver's hands and it 
that that's part of going for it and not converting is sometimes these things happen, but it, it's hard to look at it and say they had no chance of converting either of these plays. And a lot of the critics of quote unquote analytics or whatever say coaches have such a better idea of their conversion rates and what goes into these and they should listen to the flow of the game and everything. And that's, that's exactly what Dan Campbell is doing. So it seems weird to say we, the model, the modelers don't know about all this stuff. So we should defer to coaches. And then when coaches are using these factors to make decisions to be more aggressive than criticize them for it afterwards. So I, I think that to me is the frustrating part of the conversation that has happened since then. That's interesting. So the, you're, you're saying that there's this difficult middle ground to, to hold because the critics of models will sometimes say you're, you're not considering, you know, the wind or whatever. There's that's a, a joke between a few of us. Um, but on the other hand, you do get modelers sometimes act as if their you know solution is the end of all conversation and all you need to know is what comes out of the model. So the mistake is made in both directions. One of the things that's cool about the paper you referred to, the Brill Weiner paper, this is something Adi did with a PhD student at Wharton named Ryan Brill, who's fantastic. And it got, it's gotten a lot of love in the last few months since this thing has come out. We'll turn to Adi, but let me just say that what I think is most beautiful about this paper is that it acknowledges what the model doesn't know. It's like it's kind of puts a premium on uncertainty. But the other thing it does, interestingly, and unlike any other models I've seen explicitly, is that it says, look, if you think you've got a better than average kicker or a worse than average rush uh, defense, then you know, tweak the parameters of the model and see what difference it makes. And they bake that in explicitly. And, and they've even got a little interface that you can work with to a shiny app that you can play with these things. So it's it's it seems like a real advance. But let's just turn to the co-author himself. Odd. What does y'all guys say? Dan, Dan Campbell. Man, on that thing. totally a lot to say. Um, you're right that the the model itself is adaptable. You can actually change the inputs. So the things you don't change are the estimate of, of team strength, the yard line, the yards to go, the score, the time, those things aren't changeable, but you can put your probability of, of conversion in there, your field goal probability you can put in there as well. Um, but what's really much more important than just changing those numbers is we, ha- we are very humble about how much the data can really tell us about what the right answer is. So even when you fix the parameters, we still are have to accept that the data isn't rich enough to give us a good answer. It might lean one way or the other, and that's okay. Models do lean one direction, but you also want to give a sense of how uncertain it is. And so let's just talk about the two decisions, Ben, that you talked about here. The first one, which was um, the lines were up 24 to one. They were fourth and two at the, at the San Francisco 28. The advantage to going for it was about 2%. And about a, given how far ahead they were, they were about 79% chance of, actually about 80% chance of winning and compared to 78% chance of winning if they had gone kick the, the field goal. In other words, they were pretty, pretty good at, at that point, as you might have guessed. But the key number that we came up with is that we're only 60% certain that that's the right answer. In other words, if we had gotten another 15 historical years of data that we ran on where everything was the same, all the matches were the same, all the players were the same, and just the different randomness component of football was different, we might have gotten a different answer in 40% of those, of those you know, pseudo iterations. And, and that basically is a lesson to the, the coach, which is, we don't know. 
And you're, you should go and you should make your decision based on whatever you think is the best attempt. If you have a good conversion play, if you think your, your field goal kicker is weak or if you feel, feel they're strong, whatever it is, this is an on-the-field decision. It should not even remotely be, be something that we should be deciding analytically. And that's the big innovation of the Brill-Weiner method, um, among those other things. I mean, we, I think we have, I will say that I think we have a really good statistical way of doing that as a, as a, as a, as a, as a methodologist. I wanna, don't want to underwrite, you know, underplay that. But it's really the lesson. And I'll just take the, the there's two, there, the second one was about the same. This was up 14, fourth and two. On, that was the first one. The, the second one was, um, no, the second one was also fourth and two. Um, and, fourth and three, maybe. Uh, I have fourth and two. And the next one was, uh, um, yeah, so fourth and three. And then the last one, this is fourth and three. Um, this is uh, this was when they were down 24, 27. This one, actually, our model is is overwhelmingly not unbelievably, but, you know, almost 90 percent um, certain that going forward is the right decision. I don't know what what your model said. We, we really like going for it, um, which would means it would take a lot on the field to change your mind. Not impossible, but we think that's a good idea, mostly because you know, you got to win this game and they're going to get the ball back and you don't want them. You were here. Yeah. So I think and over time's a coin flip anyway, even if you do tie it, et cetera. Right. And exactly. also you have to, you have to notice that they've scored on, I don't know if it was four or five straight drives. What makes you believe you can stop them from getting a field goal, not even a touchdown. If you go up right. four points, that's a totally different situation. So the first one was an absolute toss up. The second one was overwhelmingly go and they did that and they didn't make it, but you know, whatever. So, guys, I, I'm, I'm glad we aired the models out some, and it's good that we, you know, go ahead and articulate our position. And I love that we can now say this is our position and this is the degree of confidence in that position. That's a real advance. Um, but this debate just makes me feel like it, human nature is such that we're always going to over-criticize these mistakes when they don't, when these mistakes, these decisions when they turn out poorly. And I would feel like it's just like, oh, my God, we're just – and one of the nice things that's happened on the internet in the last couple of days is that people have listed all the occasions where a team went for it on fourth and either made it or they didn't get it, but they won the game anyway. And these fourth down decisions don't get any attention. And it begun to remind me of a, pa- a favorite recent paper of mine in psychology. I feel like it just hasn't quite gotten the attention that it deserves. There's a Tom, Tom Gilovich is famous psychologist at Cornell and he had a paper in 2016 called the headwinds, tailwinds, asymmetry, and availability bias and assessments of barriers and blessings. His his they do he he does this with a student of his whose name's Shy David I. Um, he and David I run a, a number of studies who, that show that document kind of rigorously this fundamental human tendency to take for granted when the wind is at your back and disproportionately focus on the wind when it's in your face. You notice the barriers when they're there. You don't notice the barriers who that could have been there that aren't in your way. And this feels like a real nice demonstration of that. Shane. Well, I just kind of want to point out that, I mean, I, I think especially with outcomes like this, where it really was, you know, these are kind of like toss up plays as far as like, you know, what, what, the, what the kind of analytics would, would, would say mostly. Um, I, I think if I if I was kind of evaluating Dan Campbell as a coach, if it was, you know, my, my team's coach all you can really do is kind of be consistent within your process. And I mean, again, there might be context specific, you know, like his kicker struggling or something like that, some kind of aspect where you wouldn't want to kind of, but, but I, I think there is something to kind of going with what got you there as both a team philosophy and just as kind of a rational, you know, kind of a rational way of dealing with uncertainty anyway. Well, does that mean we, I mean, I, that's interesting, Shane. Um, I mean, there he, has he's to be always, some limit I mean, to that, right? One of these, like, 
Like, I mean, I think Dan Campbell, this game versus like Doug Peterson in the Super Bowl a few years ago, you know, when you're an underdog, you're especially sort of, you know, Dan Campbell always is taking these kinds of chances. And yeah, we, we have the bias that the outcomes in this particular case didn't work out. Just like we have the outcome bias that those chances that Doug Peterson took in the Super Bowl did work out. But I just think, you know, I, I mean, again, when there's so much uncertainty, the most you can have is kind of consistency in your process. You know, it does remind me of the conversations we had with the high school coach from Little Rock, who was so famous for always going forward on fourth down. We had him on the show a number of years ago. And one of his rationales was that you just built the culture and the expectation and you, you learned to deal with it when it didn't go your way. And it's just part of the way you operated. That was explicitly the way the way he thought about it. Um, ben, there were other takeaways from the weekend and from the season, and you're you're someone who we always are interested in. Like, what are you thinking about? You're always trying to push the push the ball ahead and doing interesting analysis. What else are you thinking about around the NFL these days? Yeah, so one is that the 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 playoffs have made me wonder the extent to which we have any idea of how good defenses are or how good a defense will play in the playoffs and. The, of course, this is a tiny sample and we're going to be cherry picking games because there's 13 playoff games every year. And it, it, these are just tiny samples. But if you look at the best defenses during the year, this, these were by EPA per play. These were Browns, Ravens, Jets, Cowboys, Saints. Three of them made the playoffs and only one of them, the Ravens, even won a playoff game. And if you look at teams like the Browns, they had an incredible defense during the regular season. You could find stats where they were like historically good at preventing opponents from picking up first downs. And in their first playoff game, they have to play in a dome against a team with a star rookie quarterback, and they the defense just did not translate. And it, it's not that defense doesn't matter. It's just that it's so hard to predict going forward, and maybe especially so in the playoffs when you're going to be playing, on average, all these teams that have good offenses, and it's probably or possibly – more realistic to just think that the best quarterbacks are going to be the ones that are winning going forward. I don't know to the extent that you've dug into kind of aspects, whether you could kind of break it down further and say like, well, maybe secondaries are more consistent or like, you know, like line line play is more consistent. I, again, I, I only say, cause the tri- the chiefs trigger me in their kind of current dynastic run of reminding me so much of those, you know, Patriots teams where they have a shutdown secondary and, you know, like, a great QB tight end combo. There's a lot of similarities, but really on the defensive side, it's it's shut down secondary um, and, you know, ability to generate pressure. I don't know if those aspects are more consistent. So I, I think this does get to a natural question is whether this has changed over time. So I think it's possible that all the rule changes that have happened since those Patriots teams have made it really hard to sustain really good defense going forward. We can't observe everything that matters. Uh, we can't measure everything that matters. We can speculate. We can hypothesize over time. Maybe measurements get better. What do you believe makes Mahomes such an exceptional quarterback? If if you believe he's such an exceptional quarterback, what would you like to measure? If we if we could magically measure anything you anything you you could come up with, what would that be? What do you think it is that separates Mahomes? So I think there are some things that are measurable that really set him apart. One is. The extent to which he's able to create plays without taking sacks, which is kind of his superpower, where most quarterbacks who scramble a lot also take high sack rates at the same time because they're trying to extend plays and they're taking this risk of the longer they extend the play, the more like the more likely they are to get sacked. But 
somehow Mahomes does this and just never gets sacked and is also very valuable scrambling in key situations and, and is also through his legs able to prevent the defenses from playing certain kind of coverages because they know that like if, if they're in man-to-man they're going to turn their backs and then Mahomes is just going to kill them with his legs so mm-hmm. I think those are the quantifiable things mm-hmm. um and then uh, there's also his, his arm strength and everything that we can watch while viewing him but yeah, there, there's also something about him that is unquantifiable that I think if, if I were a defensive coordinator or a defensive player, I, I would just be so scared of having to game plan or, or play against him. Real quick, you 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 mentioned the type of defense they play. I, the announcers on Sunday talked about his being him being one of the best, the best at pulling defenders off out of their zone, like helping the receivers find space by moving defenders around when they're in zone. And you're saying, so that's, you know, we presumably can quantify that now these days, but you're also saying, and I was thinking it real time because that is a known thing about running, running quarterbacks is that man to man is dangerous against them because you you get your back to them. And so that's this neat combination where he's super dangerous as a runner. So you want to play zone, but then he's super effective at moving out of moving out of your zone. Super interesting. Adi. So you talked about um, the superpower of being able to basically scramble about and not get sacked. And uh, you said it's quantifiable. So my question is, if it's quantifiable, have you quantified it? And how much of Mahomes' sort of exceptionalism sort of is, I may basically assume this, let's say we plugged an average at every other kind of component of quarterback um, attribute. And then we have this one superpower. Where does that get him? I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like an incredible superpower. I've watched enough, uh, enough football to know that being able to avoid those big losses are just gigantically valuable. Um, how much, how much, how far do you get there? I guess I'm kind of asking. I wish I had the answer off the top of my head, okay. but I don't, but I, well, I think that is exactly the right yes. question to be asking. I, but yeah, I, I think that like scramble, effective scramble plus never taking sacks. And I guess the other thing is plus almost never throwing interceptions, like just avoiding negative plays generally buys you a lot in terms of sustaining drives because you're not making those, the, the sacks and interceptions that are going to be ending a lot of drives. If I, mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking of a percentage I could put on this, and I, I, I think I would be horribly wrong if I said a number. So I'm trying to <laughs> take the coward's way out here. About, yeah. I mean, people are already talking about Mahomes as, as the goat. Sorry, Shane. Um, I know he's just you can't see <laughs> on, on the radio. You should uh, stop talking to like, those people on. if those people, if people are talking about that. Right, right. So you can just filter those let me, people let me right out. Are there other you know great quarterbacks who fall into this mode? My view is the great quarterbacks of the past were. You know, they had their greatness was something completely different. No, am I wrong? How is this? How is this? So I think the sack avoidance is definitely something shared by great quarterbacks where Tom Brady never took sacks. Peyton Manning never took sacks and they they were well known for this, but they did not pair this with also being able to hurt you with their legs to the same extent. So I, I think that's the thing. Not not saying that that alone is making him the goat or not making him the goat, but I think that that does set him apart from some of the other greats that we've seen in the past. I have a question for you, Ben, but I'll, I'll ask you, Ben, that I would love everyone to weigh in. I do this every week, so I might as well do it here again. So San Francisco's favored by one and a half. So let's say that makes them, I don't know, 53-47, maybe 55-40. Let's say 53-47, just for argument's sake, okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to tell you that Kansas City has been to six AFC championship games. Patrick Mahomes is his fourth Super Bowl. Brock Purdy hasn't been to any Super Bowls. Oh, so how much does that move your probability? I do this every week because I'm interested to know, like, now that I'm telling you it's Patrick Mahomes, I'm telling you it's his fourth Super Bowl, 
I'm telling you again, it's Patrick Mahomes. He's won two Super Bowls. How much is that worth? Or maybe you think the line has already absorbed that fact and San Francisco would be a lot higher. So how do you think about it? Personally, I don't think the line has absorbed that fact enough. I don't think I, I would put much more probability on Kansas City. I don't see how Kansas City can be an underdog in this game, but I'd love your thoughts. The, the market knows these things, but it is certainly fair to, to ask whether it has baked them in enough. And I think handicapping Chiefs games in the playoffs is so hard because it seems like they have realized that the regular season just doesn't matter. What they what they play for is winning playoff games and winning Super Bowls. So if you make a model of team strength and you tune it on past results and then you look at how the Chiefs played in the regular season this year, it's going to say, oh, the Chiefs aren't a very good team and therefore... The 49ers are one of the best offenses we've ever seen, and the Chiefs should be underdogs, maybe even heavy underdogs. But we also know that we've seen this before from the Chiefs, and somehow they and Patrick Mahomes always raise, or maybe not always, they often raise their level of play in the postseason. And I I know Aaron, um, who was on last week, might disagree about that. And I'm sorry, but I I think I do disagree. I (laughs) I, I think we have enough evidence to say that the that we should not rely on how the Chiefs have looked throughout the whole course of the season to the extent that we might with other teams where the, the Chiefs have been to all these Super Bowls and this is what they're playing for. And I would trust them more than another team that had played like they had throughout the course of the season. So I it, it, I would personally make the Chiefs as favorites, but I also don't know more than the people handicapping these games. So who knows? <laughs> You know, uh, Eric, you're not buying the story that Purdy is uh, a pressure guy. He's good in the clutch. So right, this he, is the ultimate clutch. Fine, but I just want to say, I can make a legitimate story. I did think this, especially after the Packers game. I thought the Packers were the better team. I thought that the day, Packers that should day. have won that game. Yeah. I think I'm going to say the Lions could have won that game. I mean, let's yeah. let's again say they didn't get the fourth and two. I agree with Ben. The ball was right into Johnson's hands. He catches that ball up 14. They continue that drive. It could be a totally different ball game. They fumble the ball. Um, a 50-yard, 51-yard completion off the face mask, so it should have been intercepted, not a long... No, I'm just saying, you add up that five-minute stretch of the game, and you could say, except for that, the Lions could have won the game. So I've not seen anything from San Francisco to suggest to me that they're that great a team. But on the other hand, they did win the games, and that's impressive. And I was going to say, can I... Can I, I gone I... into the two other top teams in the AFC and beat them both on the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though you could pick five minutes of that Ravens game, and if I if I'm allowed to pick five minutes and change what happened in it, I could change the outcome of that game too. This was a really <laughs> bad five minutes. That's a good. That's a good. That's a good test. Like, how many minutes do you need if you could flip the outcomes to change the outcome of a game? I mean, and, I mean, cha- change the rule on like whether like a touchy, you know, change that weird like fumble into the end zone or whatever. Take change that yeah. play. No, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great test for how close a game was. Like, how, what's the minimum change you can make to the game and get a different outcome? Um, in this case, we've we've got we've had a number lately that were pretty tight. All right, we're gonna have to go. We kept Ben longer than we thought we were. Ben, thanks for being with us, man. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Ben Baldwin. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben B Baldwin. Ben B Baldwin. Computer Cowboy, longtime friend of the show, delighted to spend time with him. Thank you guys for listening from the whole crew here. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.